0: Welcome back to the Lumberhawk podcast, y'all. Thanks for tuning in. I gotta say it, this is not financial advice. I'm just a guy with a microphone and an internet connection trying to be educational and entertaining. All right, let's get into it. I've recently been putting more and more mental energy into Bitcoin mining. That adventure started out mostly to scratch an intellectual need and to just learn about the network and the security of the network and all of that. I wasn't really all that interested in having a Bitcoin miner at the house. I know they're loud, they're expensive. They use a ton of electricity. Although my home does have solar on it. So I've considered it and I'm still considering it. I started doing some more research about some of the many remote hosted Bitcoin mining companies out there. After doing some due diligence, I ended up landing on SaaS Mining for my own personal use. As such, I've had the opportunity to uh, speak with Kent Halliburton. He is the president and COO of SaaS Mining, a couple of times now. This is our second conversation, and he was kind enough to allow me to ask him a bunch of questions about his personal life, about Bitcoin in general, about SaaS Mining as a company and just about life i appreciate him taking the time out of his busy schedule to do this and i hope y'all enjoy the conversation all right well good to have you back um so i have a jillion questions for you and i know you have time constraints so i'm just gonna roll right into it cool Uh, man let's let's start with with you as a person because I love companies, and you know, I, I'm starting to think I really like SaaS mining. But I connect with people a lot more than I do with you know businesses in general. So let's let's do that a little bit. Tell me a little bit about about your life as a kid growing up on a cranberry farm. That's really interesting. I don't think I've ever met anyone who lived <laughs> on a cranberry farm.
1: Yeah, I think uh, yeah, it's a it. I've had an unusual life journey, uh, is what I've realized. Um, and, yeah, so I, I grew up in on the Southern Oregon coast, um, about a twenty minute drive from the furthest west point in continental United States. And, you know, my my heritage, I think, is kind of interesting how I got there because, You know, I look back at my my ancestry and lineage and, you know, I'm the product of pioneers that basically pushed as far west as they possibly could. And that's, you know, literally the end of the continental U.S. was 20 minutes away. But my dad um, foresaw at at that point, this is the the early 80s, he was a sawyer in a lumber mill. You know, timber was a big product and still is on the southern Oregon coast. You know, a lot of Douglas fir is is used to to build most of the homes across the U S and it's logged out of that area. And he just foresaw that there's going to be issues. He wanted to work outdoors um, and cranberries were kind of a niche thing being grown in the area. So he made a shift into purchasing a farm when I was just a kid and I grew up sort of helping him out um, and doing sports and, you know, small town, you know, graduating class of about 50 kids. So just had that rural country upbringing, um, as a kid. And I think if anything that was beneficial and just learn how to solve problems uh, on the fly and figure things out on the go. Cause when you're on a farm, you don't really want to go into town too often. So you just pick up whatever you've got and fix problems and get going with life.
0: Nice. Nice. So you said small town, I think I looked up, it was like something about 3000 people in the town. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Um, how, how did you get from small town was at Bandon, Bandon, Oregon to, uh, to being a world traveler and president and COO of this, you know, uh, big mining company, SAS mining. What's what's that path look like? Well, I have to
1: blame my father for that. Uh, he had these books on the bookshelf when I was a kid about this fellow named Richard Halliburton that happens to be my dad's name as well. And so I would pick them up and thumb through them. And there's all these black and white photos of this guy, doing these incredible adventures like all over the planet. It turned out this guy was related to us distantly. I'm sure I'm still not certain but the, the exact connection, but something like uh, a distant cousin. Um, but he was like one of the very first um, travel adventures in coming out of the U S. So, you know, he swam the Panama Canal he climbed the, the pyramids in Egypt, the the Prince of uh, Arabia flew him around on a, on a plane to see all the ancient civilization and sites, you know, he, he climbed a volcano in Mexico. I mean, he just basically, he, he slept up at Machu Picchu uh, while it was still covered with grass and before everybody really understood what it was and how significant it was. So I had just grown up with these books and seeing these pictures. I was just like, as a kid, I was like, I knew I needed to go see the world at some point. And so Fast forward, um, I got pretty uh, entranced with surfing uh, after a trip to Hawaii as a kid and uh, decided that I needed to go to California for college. Uh, and, and the excuse was college, but um, that was just the excuse. I really just wanted to surf. And so along the way, uh, i learned how to surf. I got a computer engineering degree. Um and promptly uh, turned into into the solar industry. And uh, the solar industry was great, learned a lot, um, was really driven by climate change before it got co-opted by the ESG movement. Um, and uh, pursued, you know, a, a career there. Uh, and that the corporate side of things ended in 2012. But I continued to work in the solar industry till the 2014, something like that. Um, but that was an interesting journey because I went through growing two different organizations from like employee 25 to 400 when I left uh, and then employee number 55 to 350 by the time I left. And the second one is publicly traded and we were in nine different states and I was in charge of the sales and the software and and we're doing mergers and acquisitions. And it was It was just a lot. There was a leadership change. I was a bit burnt out. I was, you know, at this point I was 32 I was like, you know what, this is the moment I need to, I need to kick off these, uh, these paycheck paycheck shackles and go, go see the world. Um, and I started traveling and, uh, along the way in South America, I bumped into a Portuguese woman who became my wife, um, and relocated to Portugal after a couple of years of travel. Uh, and so it's quite, quite the experience, uh, you know, South America, Europe, a uh, bit of the Middle East, Southeast Asia, um, before finally I was just like, I've, I've had enough and decided to settle down and uh, start a family uh, in Portugal. And one thing has led to another and, um, you know, along the way, got bit by the Bitcoin bug, really. And that was circa 2016, late 2015. Um, and I just sort of became obsessed with it. I, you know, the more I went down that, that path, the more I was like, gosh, it's just going to change everything. And along the way, um, I realized that my career in solar was going to collide. My experience in solar was going to collide with Bitcoin mining. And I heard Will, the founder of SaaS Mining, on a podcast uh, that was being run by a fellow I knew, uh, it was one of the most popular podcasts in the solar space. And so I reached out for an intro and that was gosh, the end of 2020. Um, and Will needed some help. And so I came on to, to provide what support I could and, um, help them raise some capital. And now we're off to the races here at SAS mining. It's awesome.
0: That's such a good story. I, uh, I really appreciate people who have like done so much traveling because I I feel like it provides you a lot of perspective that it's so hard to get any other way. I mean, it's really nice to be well read or or to get experience in other ways. But there's just no um, there's no real substitute to like being out there and meeting people who just have a different perspective of life than you. And you just can't get that anywhere else. I really like that. Yeah. All right. Uh, so you mentioned you mentioned surfing real quick. So the way I came into contact with you, I mean, in a one-way conversation, was uh, through Crypto Tips. So I know that you know Toby and Heidi. Uh, I assume you met Toby surfing.
1: I did not actually. I met him. Uh, my entrance into Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin uh, funny enough, was um, through some travelers that I had met. They kind of pointed me towards um, the Dollar Vigilante. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it was a, it was a community. This is, I think they started in 2012. Um, we kind of focused on fiat and how it was going to go through some serious problems. And, I mean, they were way ahead of the curve. Um, uh, but I learned a lot in that community. And Toby was a part of that community at that juncture as well. Um, and by this point I had moved to Portugal and there was a crypto um, event that was going on their Steam Fest, and so I reached out to him. I knew he's another surfer, and and said, "Hey, I'm going to be at Steam Fest too. Like, let's let's talk and catch up." And so I met him and Heidi there at that event, and have just continued to build a friendship with him. And yeah, gone up to Nazaré and checked out the surf a, a couple times, and yeah, continue to to dialogue and have a good friendship with him.
0: Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I love their channel. So they're a pretty great resource, I think. Um, yeah, good and people. Absolutely. So we talked about how you found Bitcoin um, in a, we mentioned it earlier a little bit in our previous conversation, but in your most recent ramble that you, you sent out on Substack, you talked a little bit about how humanity operates on its finest when its time horizon is the furthest and how Bitcoin helps promote that and like re-incentivizes people to think long term you care to dive into a quick version of that?
1: Yeah. You know, <clears throat> I think that's been the part of Bitcoin that has most obsessed me is uh, I've always had a fascination with time itself and how it's very relative uh, to the, the framework that you're in. Um, and And by that, I mean, you know, if you're a virus, uh, your time scale is very different than if you are a star uh, you know your time scale is completely uh, different so time has got this like very squishy property to it and what I have and and it depends on the framework that you're looking at the the world with um, and what I've realized is that money itself changes our our time framework and by that I mean you know when people have an incentive to save, which Bitcoin provides, uh, and we used to have with gold, our time horizons extend. Um, and if you don't have a stable store of value in your society, um, then you don't save you tend to go hand to mouth with the money that you bring in because why would you let it erode uh, the value that you've created? You would want to put it into hard assets right away. Um, and a good example of this is what occurred in uh, Europe in the Middle Ages. You know, I, I I like to ask people these days, when was the last time that you heard of a construction project that was going to take six centuries to complete, right? Uh, never. I, I You can't even... Fathom that in this day and age, right? But that's exactly what occurred. Like I gave an example in my substack about the Milan Cathedral. Uh, it was started in 1386. It completed in 1965, uh, almost 600 years to, to build that thing. And it was started during the age where the the currency that was being used was the, the gold florin, which stayed roughly the same for 300 years. And it was during that time period that Europe also transitioned out of the Middle Ages, went through the Renaissance period, and began to to turn into the nation state system that we have today. Right. So when you really zoom out on history, um, and people tell you, "Hey, we need to we need to be able to print more money at will because otherwise we can't manage deflation," they just literally haven't looked at history you know it's like yeah. just look at just look at our human civilization every time that we have a stable store of value uh individual time horizons extend and we start to strive for the timeless um and that's kind of it's a very odd first principle i've realized that i carry but i, I tend to think of humans first and foremost as spiritual creatures um and you know if if you are if you have that perception uh, of us being spiritual creatures, well, you know, spiritual is without time constraint. And so when we can orient here living on on planet earth in the most timeless uh, horizon that we possibly can, we sort of aligned ourselves with our true essence. Uh, And I think that's why you look through civilizations uh, across uh, human history and where when they're in that state is when the greatest accomplishments occurred like very few people um you know look at the zero to one inventions that have occurred for humanity and you know i'm kind of leaning back on seyfa dean's book the bitcoin standard when i talk about this but um you know the period arguably between like 1870 and like 1910 was the most productive time period in American history. And that was when we were on a stable gold standard um, before World War I, when the gold standard started to break down. And during that period, most of the zero to one inventions that we have scaled in the 20th and now 21st centuries were, um, We're done. You know, penicillin was invented during that time period. Flight was invented during that time period. The beginnings of uh, long distance communication, you know, the Tesla, uh, Marconi, uh, wireless communication started then. So like the infancy, even of the internet was started during that time period. And you could make an argument that all those inventions that occurred then, we've just basically been scaling up uh, and bringing to mass uh, in the time since. But very few like genuine zero to one inventions have occurred um i mean bitcoin ob- argue is obviously one of them but for the most part and um, you know when we're in a more timeless state is when we generate the most creative and profound ideas to move civilization forward
0: nice so the the speed at which bitcoin adoption happens is obviously very much up in the air um but would it be safe to say that uh that you feel optimistic about the future of humanity based on Bitcoin ushering, ushering in this new like hard money standard that should last at least hundreds of years, if not longer.
1: Yeah, I am optimistic.
0: Um,
1: I'm optimistic. You know, I think the question breaks down to on what time horizon, right? And on a long time horizon, I have no doubt that Bitcoin will be um, the, the stable store of value for humanity. Now, the path which we go to adopt Bitcoin, I think, is very much in question. And I think that there's two major paths right now ahead of us and will ultimately come down to individuals in the US and and what they push for through the political system in the US. Uh, Because what I see is the West does not want to lose control of the money printer and so is going to make adoption slowed and more difficult. Um, And if they're successful in, you know, uh, doing what they did to gold in the 30s, uh, what's executive order 6102, where they basically made it illegal to hold gold, if something like that were to occur, it doesn't kill Bitcoin, but it stops its adoption basically in the West. Um, And what I see then is the path would then for adoption would come more through developing nations, slowly picking it up. So it would be a much longer, slower Slower route than if um, the U.S. Uh, populace winds up adopting it, and I think it's it's just because the U.S. has such a unique framework uh, through the constitutional system that the citizens could uh, wind up doing that. But it, it all kind of comes down to what
0: the the citizens of the U.S. wind up doing. Yeah, yeah, I I like to think that the property rights in this country uh, would prevent something like that from happening. But as you mentioned, it already has. So. You know, who knows? Um, I think that your story might be a little bit different than than most in uh, the way Bitcoin found them. Uh, I'm pretty standard and, you know, I showed up for the Lambos and I stayed for the revolution, so to speak. Uh Oh, me too. Don't
1: don't get that wrong. I I uh, I, I came in on the speculation ride. Um, you know, it's a <laughs> what do they call it? It's a, it's a monetary revolution dressed up as a get rich quick scheme. That, exactly, the, the, the get rich quick scheme grabs most of us to begin with, but then yeah.
0: you see the upside and you wind up digging in, and you know, so oh my gosh, there's more to it. I I bring that up because I I feel like that's a a significant barrier of entry for a lot of people, you know, that your traditional investor or, you know, just your your normal middle class family is they see the volatility of Bitcoin and, you know, they hear all the FUD on the mainstream media and all this other stuff. And, you know, when Bitcoin changes, you know, by 80% over the course of a couple of months or 10% in a day, it scares people. So my question is, at what market cap or at like, what metric do you think Bitcoin needs to uh, find in order for the spot price to be steady enough that people can actually consider using it as a medium of exchange instead of just like a capital asset? I don't know that I would look at it through that framework. Okay. I,
1: I, I think that it's more a function of what they're currently using uh being like if the dollar has some serious breakdown i think you'll start to see the bitcoin uh, adopted as a medium of exchange Uh, and i think that that's a very real potential i mean right now it's getting very strong and it looks to me like we're from a currency standpoint kind kind of moving in the direction of potentially like a a bipolar world or a duopoly between like the us dollar and bitcoin being like the the top two contenders um and maybe like the BRICS-based system is is a third. Um, but it just seems like right now with the strengthening of the dollar that uh, every, all the other currencies in the world are sort of collapsing against the dollar while the Bitcoin uh, price is holding relatively steady, um, all things being equal. And I think, unfortunately, a reality with time horizons is such that four years is too long for most people to take into consideration. But if you're able to take a four-year time frame into consideration, you can draw a four-year average price on the Bitcoin chart, which is the cycle that it goes through with the halvings. So you can argue that that is just the best trend to look at for Bitcoin. Um, it's never once gone down. It appreciates at roughly $200 every week, you know? So when you look at it from the, from The right time perspective it's actually not very volatile and that's why i think that any way that you can approach acquiring bitcoin through like a dollar cost averaged approach you know whether that's through in the us i think the the most known is like swan um or if you want to take your capital and have a hard asset like what saas mining provides um you know for roughly five thousand dollars you're mining bitcoin with that asset and dollar cost averaging and avoiding the volatility. Um, and I think that as people realize that that, that four-year trend is what the right focus is, and people lengthen their time horizons, it's not such a hard thing to to get involved with. I think the problem is that most of us think, oh, I've got this money, this is the right time to do it, and I'm smarter than the market, so I'm going to buy. and I promise you, unless you spent 10,000 hours trading the market to
0: become a pro, you are not smarter than the market. Yep. absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I personally love using the Lightning Network and the Strike app for dollar-cross averaging just because it's basically free. Uh, so I recommend everyone, you know, interested in that. Check that sure. out. But I- I'm also uh, interested specifically in Bitcoin mining for that reason, because it is like dollar cost averaging, converting electricity directly into Bitcoin, usually at a pretty significant discount as compared to you know, buying it the old fashioned way. Yep. Um, so with that, let's, let's roll right into questions about SaaS mining. So you talked a little bit about how you, how you linked up with Will and how that connection started. Um, most of the people that I network with on a professional level are real estate investors, Mm-hmm. And a little bit of stock market investors, um, but mostly like long term buy and hold real estate, a little bit of Airbnb, that kind of stuff. Can you give me like a 30 second sales pitch as to why real estate investors should consider Bitcoin mining as part of their passive income portfolio? Even but even if, if they're not like, you know, part of the revolution yet.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. Just from a strictly, hey, I want to make money standpoint. I mean, it's it's a fantastic opportunity. Um So some simple numbers that, and we use this base, so this is not financial advice. This is just calculations that we've done based on historical, right? So it's really important that we look at historical and not project what you will uh, be able to make. But what we see is you've got basically a four-year lifespan, potentially longer, out of a single mining rig. Uh, That mining rig costs about $5,000. And if you look at your uh, income uh, after expenses, your profits, um, on a yearly basis, you're making roughly $5,000. Um, that's historical uh, data uh, based on, you know, an average price of Bitcoin in the last six months and an average hash rate of Bitcoin. Um, so you can, you know, the, the high numbers are you can turn 20,000 into 5,000 or you can turn 5,000 into 20,000. And um, I think for a real estate investor, that should be very attractive Because it's actually passive income, right? When you have an Airbnb or uh, any other rental homes, uh, I don't, I mean, I've got many family members that do, and uh, it's not truly passive. You know, there's always an active component of management in there uh, versus this is truly just a sit back. And especially with a company like SAS Mining, you know, we're we're offering Bitcoin mining as a service. We're basically taking that hard asset and making sure it performs at its utmost. Um, and we're not marking up the price of of the power that your device is consuming, and we're not marking up the price of the mining rigs, we're simply taking a percentage of the rewards themselves, uh, and that's 15%. So, you know, you're getting the majority of the gains uh, directly uh, to your wallet, and we don't touch those, you know, so we're just providing the service so that individuals can do that. uh, And then we're taking a little bit of the The revenue uh, through the Bitcoin rewards. And that allows us to have actually perfectly aligned incentives with our customers too, because our only opportunity to make money in that structure is the same as you as an investor, uh, which is producing as many Bitcoin as you possibly can.
0: Okay. So as the price of Bitcoin fluctuates, um, and assuming that energy costs are relatively flat, when um, the hash rate, when the difficulty uh, goes up because of hash rate going up, and individuals uh, want to choose whether or not their rig is operational, how easy is that going to be for your customers to be able to change?
1: Yeah, so I think first of all, it's important to uh, to know this is the the third cycle that I'm going through, and the last two, the exact same conversation came up, not specific to Bitcoin mining, but you know. Uh, is uh, the the price can you know? Let me back up. What most people do when they analyze Bitcoin mining is they look at either the price or the hash rate, but not both in conjunction. And you have to do that for this business. So if you look at historically, you know, your gains in Bitcoin mining actually become greatest when the 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 price accelerates while the hash rate uh, slowly. Um, creeps up because your gains come on the difference between the price and the hash rate, right? So when that gap opens, I mean, people in the last cycle were paying for their mining rigs within three months. I mean, it was insane. Uh, and so setting yourself up for that opportunity is where people uh, see the greatest benefits. And it's during this time period in the bear market that those those players are able to do that. So back to the, that happening, most everybody will come in with a worst case scenario and say, it's priced in, the price is not going to change. This is what it is, and the hash rate's increasing, so therefore it's not worth we're doing. I'm. If you just look at history, that's not been the case. Every every single person that said the price of Bitcoin has been priced in, the, the reduction in supply has been wrong. I You always see an acceleration in the price. And so that's, I think, part of the risk of becoming a Bitcoin miner that you have to accept is, hey, that's, likely to happen again. It's happened three out of the last four cycles, or it's happened each of the last four cycles. And we've now, I think this is the third or the fourth. Anyway, it's been a very consistent trend for Bitcoin for that to occur. But to be specific and answer your question, um, the way we've structured our agreement is you are locked into it for a year. uh, And that's just to make sure that you know, we get uh, value out of the relationship, but then after that first year, we have a buyout schedule. Um, And if you don't want to have us purchase your mining rig for you, uh, we will ship it back to you. Um, And then it's up to you how you want to manage it.
0: Okay. You, uh, you mentioned that the average rig expectancy is three, four years. A lot of people use those numbers. Um, You know, depending on conditions longer is not, not unheard of. Have you as has SAS mining ever considered doing immersion, uh, mining, you know, cause I, I don't know. I'm not a miner, but I would think that in an immersion bath, a rig would easily last like seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, maybe.
1: Yeah. Um, so yes, we have, and we'd like to move that direction in the future. Um, and at this point, we're still a little too early to be able to access those types of resources. Um, and we, I am convinced that the rigs will last longer. How much longer is still a very open question. Um, it's kind of, we need a few years to see, but everybody I speak to says, yes, the rigs will last longer. Do you double the life expectancy? I don't know.
0: Okay. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about just in general, how mining pools work and what the relationship between SaaS mining and then the, your customers joining mining pools, is that like a, um, a service that you're gonna provide or is that something people will find on their own? And also what kind of real-time data that SaaS mining will be providing uh, so that way people can kind of keep up on on what their rigs are doing?
1: Yeah, so uh, our team right now is working really hard on building out our dashboard to provide those metrics. And we are going to have fleet management in place and then extracting the the data from the fleet management system to be able to pipe it into a custom dashboard because we don't think that anybody's done justice to what a dashboard should be for the retail uh, market. Um, So as far as how the mining pool works, we are planning to have a default to Luxor, uh, to begin with, we'd like to add some more optionality, but our, our goal with SAS mining is to make this as easy as, of an experience as it is to hail an Uber, um, or to be able to, to book a home share through Airbnb. Um, and so what we're aiming for is that we have an option of two or three different pools available in the future right now, just Luxor. Um, but people can toggle that just based on a dropdown. Uh, to go to the pool that they would like. Um, but the way it, it will work is that we point the hash rate towards Luxor uh, and the mining pool itself, Luxor, will actually distribute the rewards uh, 85% directly to the customer, uh, the other 15% to us, and we never custody the customer's Bitcoin. Uh, how a mining pool itself functions, I think, is what you were asking.
0: Right? Yeah, just like a general overview. Uh, yeah. I feel like a lot of people who are new to the space... I don't even know what I'm talking about.
1: No. So yeah, it's, it is unfortunately the most complicated thing. And also the part that people overcomplicate is what I've experienced trying to explain this to people. So if you can imagine, um, however, ha- however much hash rate you produce, that is a percentage of the total hash rate on the network. That percentage multiplied by 900 Bitcoin a day will be your rough take. Now, if you're a single miner, just mining directly on the Bitcoin network, um, you're going to wait a long time before you actually hit a Bitcoin reward, most likely. Uh, And it's for that reason that people pool their hash rate together, because it makes for a more steady flow of Bitcoin rewards. Um, And so joining up hash rate together means that more frequent block rewards are found. And then the mining pool itself will distribute those rewards based on how much activity each individual miner produced during the time period, those rewards. So you can think of it like shares, like you've got a share of the work and every time a reward comes in, they distribute, they say, okay, what's the total number of shares? The Bitcoin block reward is 6.25 divided by the number of shares. You have a hundred shares. We're going to multiply it by the share price, distribute the rewards accordingly. So it's very fair and what you're getting is steady income from or steady block rewards, uh, ste- not steady block rewards, steady rewards as a result. But they're fractions of a Bitcoin versus if you're mining directly on the network, you're, you're feast or famine. And it's going to be famine for likely a long time before you hit 6.25. In fact, you may never, you know, uh, yeah. hit that because, you know, the way we look at it with like the top end mining rig right now, current hash rate. It looks to us like close to 0.2 Bitcoin per year per mining rig, right? So um, 6.25 means, yeah, you, you gotta kind of have to get lucky to
0: have your single miner directly on the network produce rewards. Yeah, I remember somebody who had an individual miner a few months back got the reward and they weren't part of a pool. And it's so uncommon that it like made the you know the bitcoin news and it made the circles and it was like oh this guy got it all 6.25 by himself and it was freaking out and they'd only been mining for like a month or like six months or some short amount of time and uh i'm like you just unplug it now and call it a day you're you're not you're, you're, you're never yeah. gonna hit that again that's like hitting the lottery
1: it was it it's day. literally like hitting the lottery i mean and that's that's how it works i mean that you know i think a lot of people get hung up on on how mining itself works and i read this brains does Amazing research if you're not familiar with them, um, but they have this analogy that I think is the best that I've come across. But imagine that you're you're at a, a casino and you've got a thousand people sitting around uh, the table, and each person has a set of dice, uh, and this dice has two thousand sides on it, right? And the first person that rolls um, anything less than ten gets all the chips on the table. So what are you going to do? Each each of those thousand people sitting around the table are just going to be tossing their dice and, and getting a random number, you know, anywhere from one to two thousand. And the first person that hits 10 uh, shows his dice, gets the chips on the table and new chips are put on the table and everybody goes back to roll on the dice. It's that simple. Yeah.
0: Uh, that's what Bitcoin mining is. Yeah, that, that's a that's a good way to put it. Um, Going back to to SaaS mining and communication with the customers, uh, you guys recently opened up a Telegram channel. Yep. And, and so, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I don't know like how how much that's rolled out yet, but if you could talk about what um, what the vision for SaaS mining and communication uh, with their clients, you know what the expectations are going forward, uh, how much back and forth we expect there to be.
1: Yeah. So that uh, Telegram channel is a VIP channel specifically to people that join the waitlist. So as soon as you're on the waitlist, you're you're eligible to be part of that because um, we know once people are on the waitlist, they're probably going to have more questions. Um, and, you know, we want to cater to those people and, and keep the noise out because we know that you're moving forward with having a mining rig. Uh, so we started that out as a way to try to have more instantaneous communication with our customers But in addition to that, we have a two uh, every two weeks, we're sending email updates out to everybody um, that's on the wait list. And in addition, uh, I'm in the process actually of developing uh, a call center um, that will be able to support customer inquiries and the onboarding process, Uh, you know, how to collect payments when it's time to resell the mining rig. So, right now, our timeline. We've got about 30% capacity remaining uh, in our in our flagship facility that will be live about the 15th of November. That's our target right now. And we're targeting sometime probably between the 10th and the 15th to start onboarding customers, um, you know, collecting payments that way. We're trying to give as close to an instantaneous experience as possible for our clients. Um, and just because that doesn't exist in the marketplace and, and we think that that's the best way to serve our clients. Uh, so that people's money isn't tied up. So to join the wait list is $97 per mining rig reservation. And then you've got access to our telegram, uh, the email communications, and shortly we'll have a a call center as well for people that have have questions.
0: Okay, great. Um, I know we're getting a little short on time. I have a couple of questions that I skipped earlier that I, I just have to know. Sure. All right. So in 2012, on December 28th, you bought a Christmas tree for $1.50. Why? And what'd you do with it?
1: Oh, so this is, uh, yeah, one of my best buddies, he's, he's gotten into business. Uh, he likes to uh, collect them uh, for, uh, for, for their value, you know, because right after Christmas, you go from $1.50 or $3 a foot right now um, to, you know, pennies on the dollar. So we just save them for the next year. You save a tree for a whole year? I know it's just a joke. I was (laughs) like, I don't, I don't understand what's happening. (laughs) No, it's totally a joke. We, me and my buddy, we always joke after Christmas. Hey, man, let's go get those trees. They're on, they're on sale finally.
0: Oh, okay. So you didn't actually buy a tree? No, no, it's just a joke. We, we always say
1: we're going to get into business and sell Christmas trees on the side right after Christmas is over.
0: Hey, there's still time. There's still time. Okay. what, uh, it doesn't have to be about Bitcoin, what what book would you say is your highest recommend, must read for the average person to get out there and look at?
1: What, I guess in what context, uh, you know, what, what, we're talking somebody that's trying to, to break out of the matrix and wants to just understand a greater reality? Or are we talking about somebody that just wants to understand economics a lot? Better,
0: like yeah, somebody. Right, let me know. let is me rephrase the question. Yeah. What what book have you read that has had the most significant impact in your life? However, it is you define it.
1: Hmm. Okay. Yeah. In that case, I read a book, and, and I think timing of when you pick up a book has something to to do with it as well. But I read a book um, in my when I was probably twenty three that really impacted me, and that was um, a book called "Convers a Conversation with God." And the title of the book is turns a lot of people off. And I've always told people that decide to pick it up, like, hey, um, don't let the title throw you because it's not what you think. And and everybody that's read it has said, yeah, you're right. It wasn't what I thought because that term God is so loaded. But I just found the the book to be very uh, insightful on understanding reality itself. Um, And so it had a really big impact on me and my life at that point in time. Uh, I would say more recently, the book that has stayed um, sort of top of mind, I keep coming back to is The Sovereign Individual. Um, There's something about that book that I found so prescient. Um, You know, it was written in the 90s, a period that I lived through and can remember. Um, And their ability at that point in time, you know, I think it was written when I was 19, and when I go back and think through my 19 year old eyes and and look and and consider this book and that knowledge, I'm like, how did they get so accurate about the future and everything that we were going to experience at that point in time? I mean, truly uh, phenomenal. But I I feel like the book that they wrote um, most accurately predicted the future of anything I've come across, uh, and I think continues to be a good. Um, have have a good set of guiding principles. All right, nice.
0: I'll uh, I'll definitely look at that one. Um All right, well, I know you have Oh, you know, one more one more piece of advice question. So, assuming you meet somebody who's just getting into the Bitcoin rabbit hole right now, just starting, just looking down the hole. What what advice would you give them either so they don't get too lost or so they just get lo- lost just enough? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I was actually uh, just uh, commenting with somebody on Twitter about this. It's really hard to get started here because it's so multifaceted and multidisciplinary that until it, it reaches like mass awareness, I feel like you just have to have some amount of curiosity to keep going and educating yourself and also a willingness to admit that maybe your previous views were wrong. You know, what's that, that classic quote, um, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you yeah. do? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people that are just resistant to accepting that, that there might be a different set of facts out there that cause them to change their mind. Um, but what I come back to is with Bitcoin, it doesn't make any sense until you understand money itself. And that is a hard thing to understand that involves a lot of historical understanding. And the one data point that I try to give them is just to tell them, hey, just so you understand, in 1971, uh, our money was separated from the laws of physics. And just, I I try to bring everything back to to laws of physics in a lot of conversation because that's reality. And if you deny the laws of physics, then you're delusional. I'm sorry. Um, And our... we we separated money from the laws of physics and that's not once ever worked out in the history of human civilization. And I think you're relatively hubristic if you're going to bet that it will work out this time.
0: Yeah. That's, that's very fair. Breed love. Anyone who doesn't know breed love, you should, he does some great work on, on what his money means, what his whole show show is called. So definitely, definitely worth checking that out. Uh, Well, I will let you go. I know you have a busy day. Uh, If you could plug, your Twitter, SAS Mining, all that stuff where people can go, where they can sign up. I'll I'll put a link in the the show notes, all that kind of thing.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, so at K Halliburton is my Twitter. At SAS Mining is uh SAS Mining the Company, Sazmining.com, of course. Um, and then I've got a, a Substack if you want to follow with my my random thoughts that I produce infrequently. Uh You're yeah, dot substack dot com. Um, yeah, but very, very, very pleased to be able to be here with you, Patrick, and and have this I conversation. It. Always, always enjoy these, and uh,
0: I'm just honored that uh, you've decided to follow follow along with this journey I'm on. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about it. I'm 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 here, but uh, I will let you know when I get this pushed out, and we'll we'll be in touch. Sounds good. All right, thanks, Kent. Have a great day. You too. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate y'all tuning in. Comments are welcome. Feel free to say hello. If you know anyone who can benefit from this content, please go ahead and share it with them. You can find me on Substack, Twitter, all the podcast platforms. If you're listening to this, I encourage you to check out Fountain. You can stack sats for free just for listening to the podcast. I have a link for that in the show notes. Also, you can earn more sats by playing Blinko. Which is on the Choice app. You can start sacking sats in an IRA. Putting Bitcoin into a retirement account that will never see taxes is something that everyone should be considering. All right, y'all, have a great day. See you next time.